0: Dr. Red Leonard, thank you so much for um, coming on. And I think it might surprise folks that a doctor from New York would have had so much experience in rural America. <laughs> and so I want, yeah. if you could just spend a few minutes talking about your experience and how you started and, and your interest in delivering higher quality rural healthcare to children in, um, in my part of the world.
1: Sure, so actually um, my first job as a physician after my training, uh, I was supposed to be heading to a career in pediatric cardiology, and um, I saw a poster uh, that said it was an old Vista Volunteers in Service to America poster on the wall of the doctor's dining room on the bulletin board, and said, uh, "You know, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem." And then it talked about the dire circumstances in uh, in the Mississippi Delta of uh, state of Arkansas, and I went out that weekend to visit, and I. Uh, was just uh, overwhelmed with uh, interest in in uh, going there and I, we ended up um, uh, spending two years in Arkansas i was I was the director of a uh, of a of a federally funded clinic that ended up um, becoming one of the one of the main sources of health care for the entire region in that uh, in rural Arkansas and then later um, we started an organization called Children's Health Fund the We Being my Wife and and the singer, Paul Simon. And that started in 1987. And we've been providing very comprehensive health care to children in many rural areas around the United States, including in Texas, um, in Southern Arizona, in rural Mississippi and so on. So, um, I, I think there are some commonalities, um, in terms of the challenges for children in, uh, for poor children in, um, in urban areas and in, in rural areas. And uh, a lot of it boils down to not having access to appropriate high quality uh, medical care. And and so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to what's going on in America's rural communities, even though I'm from Brooklyn, New York originally, but I've spent an awful lot of time uh, thinking about and working with uh, uh, children and their families in these very isolated areas where Access to medical care is just extremely difficult.
0: And on top of that credential, you also have become a national expert on pandemics. Can you explain how that transition happened in your
1: life? Well, um, so at one point in my life, I was the director of a very large pediatric intensive care unit. This is after my experience in Arkansas. I went back to where I had, had gone to medical school, which was in Miami, Florida, and the first thing that happened that was extremely influential in my career was that um, I organized a couple of medical teams, and we went in 1976 uh, to help out after a massive earthquake in uh, Guatemala, and that sort of set me on a path of, uh, you know, thinking about disasters and uh, what can be done and what needs to happen, and then I established something called the National Center for disaster preparedness at Columbia University, and that that was set up in 2003. So since 2003, we've done a, a tremendous amount of work uh, on disasters of all types, including planning for pandemics. And by the way, even before uh, the center was, uh, was formally set up, it was still something I've been thinking about for quite some time. But once the center was set up, We've been involved in many many disasters, including, you know, major uh, hurricanes, Hurricane Andrew in South Florida, which are a true Category Five hurricane, in 1992, uh, the hurricanes of, uh, you know, the the um, Superstorm Sandy that hit the New York area, Hurricane Harvey, in Texas, Hurricane uh, Michael in um, the uh, Florida Panhandle, and so on. So, um, we've been really quite involved. But the pandemic situation, which sort of leads us to today, is something that I've been involved in since around 2006 or 2007, uh, the federal government at that point was doing a lot of pandemic planning. We were worried about an avian flu type of pandemic, and we needed to be worried about it. And every state, besides the federal government, every state and every, every city really had a pandemic plan that was on the shelf.
0: Well, and, and, you know, I think, I think one of the uh, questions that people have, especially in uh, rural America, is, look, this is, seems to be an urban problem. It's hit New York City quite hard, um, uh, New Orleans, you know, all yeah. of the urban areas. Um, a listener who feels uh, a lot of um, complacency about whether this, could in fact, affect um, rural health care, this pandemic that we're in.
1: Well, it does. There's a couple of issues about this, Senator. Um, One is that a a lot of rural Americans, uh, a lot of Americans who live in rural communities, live in areas that the federal government calls health professional shortage areas where well before the pandemic and for decades, uh, there are not sufficient doctors in a lot of our uh, rural communities around the United States. And the designation in the federal government of health professional shortage areas, or what we call hipsis, includes about 65 million Americans who live in areas that already have uh, a short supply of doctors and health clinics and so on. So the difficulty getting access to medical care is a very long-standing one. And then um, if we get something like an outbreak, and by the way, we're getting we're getting cases all over the country and in many rural areas. So far, they're not resulting in massive outbreaks like we've seen in New York or in New Orleans, but uh, I don't think people should feel complacent about that. And I do think uh, I'm concerned, you know, there's been some serious reports of uh, uh, COVID-19 in in the Navajo Nation, for example. And I think I've been in touch with people in Mississippi, in Arizona, and so on. And they're all seeing cases that people I've seen worried.
0: Yeah, I, I'm deeply worried about what case of um, uh, our Native American reservations, and certainly, um, given it, it, and not that every culture doesn't um, doesn't respect their elders, but. Um, this is a culture that, um, not only respects their elders, but expects that their elders will live with them. And so an outbreak will have a dramatic effect on, uh, some of the most vulnerable. And, um, so we're seeing the, uh, high, higher, rates of minority deaths, higher rates of deaths by, uh, from, uh, uh, from the, uh, COVID-19, um, based on chronic conditions, which we know, um, attract poverty.
1: Absolutely. And, um. And I, this is why complacency is not the right uh, approach right now. I think we need to be extremely attentive to how things develop uh, in, among Native American populations, but also in all populations in areas where there's uh, poor access to medical care mm-hmm. and, and also but, yeah. poor access, by the way, to PPE and other things that people need.
0: If, if, I could, if I could ask you a couple of tough questions. First off, so, if, yeah. if we had people who were living in rural areas were healthcare providers, what advice would you give to them right now on the pandemic? Um, and what would you um, encourage them to be doing to prepare for any kind of future respiratory pandemic?
1: Well, first of all, the hospitals in rural areas have to really be thinking about how they're going to handle potential uh, overwhelming number of people that, uh, will get uh, sick in their communities. Are those hospitals prepared and people in those communities? I, if, if I were living down there right now, I would have, you know, masks and I would have uh, gloves there. I would be very attentive to uh, prevention, preventing the spread of disease, whether the state requires it or not, I would really try to maintain, uh, you know, physical distancing or social distancing, as some people call it. And uh, I think uh, I think I would start thinking about what I would do if there was a serious outbreak in my community so you're not caught uh, unprepared if there is somehow a, a real uh, significant outbreak of COVID in your community. So being prepared personally, making sure local hospitals are prepared and people take it seriously uh, would be the things that I would recommend. And by the yeah, way... I- Go ahead. One of the things, like I mentioned, so um, I think we have to think about um, illnesses differently. So if somebody, you or somebody else or somebody you're close to, is, um, is develops symptoms that are flu-like, it's very important that you get tested because the, the so-called regular flu is very likely to be a COVID-19 right now. And the other thing to be aware of is that there are certain groups of people who are extremely vulnerable to getting very sick, which include older people and uh, people with uh, pre-existing conditions. And the most vulnerable, of course, being an older per- person who um, who has uh, you know, diabetes or obesity or hypertension or lung disease, all of those people would be particularly vulnerable. So they should be really, really careful um, not to be around people with any kind of symptoms, and to make sure that they are uh, in a circumstance where they, if they had to shelter in place for a while, they could be able to do that. And,
0: and once again, it goes goes back to the ability to test. For many of our rural communities, one of the largest employers in in many midsize uh, rural towns is the local nursing home, and and right. obviously, I'm very concerned about any kind of outbreak that would happen. You know. Look around, I go to the grocery store. I wear my Minnesota Twins mask, which gets a laugh from almost everyone. Um, but uh, <laughs> maybe maybe ten, fifteen percent of people in the grocery store are actually um, wearing a mask, and very few of the employees are wearing a mask.
1: Yeah, well, you, you just contrast of what's happening in New York. now our employees and and customers, Wearing masks, they're also limiting number of people in the grocery store, so there's lines outside the grocery store with people separating by you know at least six feet, and then they're not allowed in one person comes out another person goes in and those are the kind of things that um are potentially coming to uh, rural communities yeah
0: i i think i I think it's it's um You know, and I hate to draw this parallel, but for years, rural America thought they were exempt from any kind of addiction epidemic. Guess what? They're not. No no more.
1: Exactly. Right. and, And
0: I like reminding people when they say, oh, this isn't going to happen in rural communities. I said, you never thought you'd have opioid addiction problem in rural communities either. And so, you know, you're not immune uh, from this disease, a tragedy for so many families and certainly for your, your home state, um, given the, uh, the number of deaths in New York. Also, is an opportunity for us to talk about health care because we know that chronic Make people more vulnerable. We know that many chronic conditions are preventable um, with the right kind of treatment and early interventions. And and let's admit it, with the, uh, changes in in human lifestyle. Um, what yes. do you think? What What do you think we should take away from this in terms of creating a more resilient um, uh, healthcare system to something like this, but also population. Right. So there's a couple of things about
1: this. I think healthcare in America is going to never be the same again. I think it's pretty clear that we cannot have uh, anybody that's uninsured. I'm, I'm one of the people out of favor of, um, you, you know, continuing with the Affordable Care Act that President Obama put in place, but supplementing with a public option so that everybody can get into the system. Secondly, I think especially in rural areas, we need a lot more federally qualified health centers. So we need a lot more uh, clinics that are uh, based on a sliding scale fee that are supported by the federal government and that are everywhere. We cannot have uh, so many Americans living in communities that uh, that have uh, real difficulties getting access to medical care. So, big investments in the community health care health center movement would be really great. Second of all, this is true in New York. And I imagine it's true in rural areas, I know it's true in many rural areas where access to medical care is different, is uh, is reduced, that we have people that use the emergency rooms of hospitals as their primary care doctors. And that's that can't happen anymore. We have to, uh, you know, we have to free up the emergency rooms for actual emergencies and we have to make sure there's enough of these uh, federally qualified uh, health clinics everywhere so that nobody um, nobody needs to go to the hospital unless they're actually really sick and they need acute evaluation and they need to be hospitalized. Um, Senator, what what kind of doctor is your husband? I'm just curious. Um,
0: He's a family physician works yeah. in a in a small clinic with um five other practitioners and you know it it started out where um uh and and this is the transition that we're seeing right now with the with the pandemic um very few patients now he's back to his regular load um and the precautions that they're taking uh, again um as as nationally people say we have enough p p e um he's expected to wear the same mask every day for a week <laughs> Um, and yeah, the, the so healthcare that. facility that that he
1: works for. It's a different world, but I do think we're going to see some changes. Like I said, we we starting with we can't tolerate people without uh, not having insurance and not having a a quality uh, place to go to. So
0: the the, the great thing about um, community health centers, and I'm a huge advocate. Um, as you see, it, the the the, the, the People who aren't familiar with this, uh, this type of practice um, in most community uh, uh, clinics, um, they will have dental care, which often gets forgotten. I mean, there's a lot,
1: I, this is such a surreal time, Senator, you know, we're, we're dealing with something that's changing our lives and, and it's going to be a long time before uh, we see you know, uh, some sort of return to full-scale normalcy, and the normalcy is going to be different. I keep telling people there's, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's a very long tunnel um, because I, I think this pandemic is going to be with us for a while. I think it's in, inevitable, essentially, that we'll we'll see a second wave in the fall and the winter. We don't have a vaccine yet, and so on. So right now, the entire country, uh, everybody is having to uh, to cope with this this reality that's been caused by the pandemic, and by the way, I, I really also want to say that I've been extremely disappointed uh, and amazed at the incompetence of the federal government here. Um, what's come out of the White House has been astoundingly inadequate. Um, a lack of intelligent leadership, a lack of direction for the for the whole country. Uh, this this uh, whatever whatever the president's messages are that get instantly contradicted even by his own advisors. All of this really does undermine uh, confidence in government and uh, the incompetencies have been pretty stunning, stunning as far as I'm concerned
0: instead of instead of hunkering down and saying how do you get PPE and then transitioning to how do we make sure that we have the manufacturing capacity in future events to, to turn on a dime um, to manufacture yeah. these kinds of products I mean I'm not sh- I'm not sure you want to stockpile for years a lot of PPE but but you need to have the capacity to generate it very quickly and generate it with reliance on foreign manufacturing. I mean, you know, there's, yeah. there's just such an interesting of view, I I have a friend who wrote a book once about, you know, take this job and ship it, and bemoaned the the fact that um, we don't make huffy bikes in the United States anymore. I said, I'm not worried about a huffy bike. That's not an essential piece of equipment, but certainly Mm -hmm. um, if we don't come out of this pandemic and evaluate where we get our antibiotics, where we get our precursors for testing, where we get PPE and what capability we have to have in this country to uh, manufacture and generate those levels of supplies very, very quickly in the event of a pandemic. Then we—that's that's rule number one in my my book. And you know, I, there's a lot of lot of uh, folks now producing ventilators. That's good, but it it ignores the fact that um, my husband is still wearing the same mask every day
1: for a week.
0: And if I'm one of his patients, I don't want him to be wearing the same mask every day for a week. No, no right? you
1: don't exactly right and i had the same experience with my son who was in pain having to tell uh, the all the staff that they they can't change between patients uh and they're sick patients and obviously in the emergency room in new york um and it's all it, it's really forced us to take a real look at our systems what we're prepared for why we were so unprepared well, it, it's you know it's Terrible
0: doctor I you know all of the great planning and the great work that um, people like you have done and and let's let's acknowledge um, George W. Bush, who, who put pandemics on the front burner, and President Obama, who, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of President Obama from the current um, uh, administration. But I remember interviews when they said, what kept you up at night as a president? And he said, a respiratory pandemic. And, and um, there were a lot of plans done and a lot of ignoring of those plans. And I, I think it is time for everybody to, to get in a room, Congress and and the White House and the Health and Human Services and and um, you know the Department of Homeland Security and sit down and make a list. What have we learned so far? And let's not yeah. forget this because I, we're we're now going to get lost in whether we should be helping state governments, whether we should be yeah we should be giving wow. liability assurances. And it's we're all, I can see the gravitation all the way back to everybody's kind of zone of political rhetoric, as opposed to responding to the public's concern about preparedness.
1: Yeah, this should be completely apolitical. This is about uh, the resiliency and survival of Americans, of all parties, of all stripes, and and that's the way we should look at it. But my concern, too, is that after every major disaster, there's always kind of a hot wash or an after-action report. There are always described lessons learned. The problem is we may learn the lessons and we'll write them down, but the question is, will we apply those lessons? And that's where, you know, we're gonna have to have strong political leadership from uh, both parties that say, look, here's what we learned from this pandemic experience and here's what we can never allow to happen again and come up with plans that, and like you were talking about, the manufacturing of certain things, we can't be dependent on, you know, we have the testing equipment, we don't have the nasal swabs to get the samples. We don't have the chemical reagents necessary uh, to test for the virus. That cannot be. We have the capacity to do that, to manufacture those kinds of things here, and we should make sure that we are doing that. And that we can turn on and dime, like you said, to, to, uh, to make things happen. We have the Defense Production Act.
0: Uh, one one of my great hopes is that you will participate, and people like you who not only have the experience of working in major medical centers in urban areas, but also you know have a have a um, understanding and a passion for delivery of rural health care.
1: I think that people in power, except for people representing rural states like North Dakota and everywhere else, um, there's there's a general kind of uh, sense that, that's, that they're, they're secondary parts of, of America and they're actually primary parts of America and they need to be uh, understood as uh, needing the, the kinds of services and resources that everybody else gets. And I think we sometimes forget that. And I think this issue about building community health centers is is a good example of it. The entire country needs to make sure that every American has access to quality health care and the federal government has a major role in making that happen with the development of these, uh, more and more of these community health centers. We probably need twice as many.
0: I think as we move forward with health care, we need more advice, uh, uh, from healthcare care professionals like you and less advice from politicians who, um, who uh, want to politicize health care. And so, yeah. um, you know, we're, uh, people really see firsthand the sacrifice people who work in rural uh, health care are, are making, but also um, the fact that uh, it is absolutely one of the most essential services we receive in this country, and it shouldn't be based on your income level.
1: No, one of the points I want to make about this is every medical school in America gets a lot of federal support to operate, to train, to teach you know, doctors, etc., And I think there should be some sort of uh, payback that every doctor and every nurse uh, has to spend a couple of years in an underserved, medically underserved community, uh, just as part of our national uh, collective commitment to the public good that involves the entire country. And if it was up to me you know, uh, you know, doctors get to choose the, you know, whatever communities they want to work in and, you know, they can go to the more affluent ones, whatever, and I don't, you know, that's fine and that could happen, but I think they first ought to uh, give back to the country with a couple of years of service in an underserved community and working in what I hope will be a whole new uh, wave, a whole new uh, development of uh, community health centers around the country.
0: Well, amen to that. Thank you so much. for. Doing. I hope someday I might be able to meet you in person. And um, we're trying to put together policies um, for um, Democratic candidates to run on focused on putting together rural health care
1: policies.
0: And so it would be great to run some of our ideas past you.
1: Anytime. Seriously, um, you should have my cell phone and my email and just don't hesitate to reach out anytime.
0: Well, and you know, I, I I love the expansion of the the um, public health commitment, um, you know, and and certainly you seem very aware of the health care disparities in you know, Indian reservations, which is an abomination. What Indian health has it's done, just
1: absolutely uh, horrible. And if there's anything at all I could do on that front, I I hope you'll call on me. But uh, it's 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 horrifying how, how much, uh, we've left out people, uh, from just the quality of life issues and specifically, uh, access to healthcare they need. The healthcare has been, uh, I'm, I'm trying to use the right language here because I know this is kind of a family podcast, but we have a lot to make up for. All oh, I can tell you yeah. that, uh, no, they deserve it deserves a lot of attention. So,
0: and, you know, one of the, one of the great uh, movements that uh, I've been part of on reservations is the nutrition movement. Um, again, going back to creating more resiliency. But, you know, the, yeah. the, the chronic conditions, the diabetes, just, I mean, Horrible. if this thing catches hold, if it catches hold in Indian communities, I really, I, I know that a much higher percentage of people will die as a result of contacting um, COVID-19.
1: No question about it. So I'm really uh, happy to speak to you now or anytime uh, going forward. So please do reach out.
0: Thanks for listening. And if you're really interested and you want more information and want to actually see visually what we're talking about, join us on social media at onecountryproject.org.